If you're still on the hunt for a sports book to call home, bet the nonstop action of March Madness with my bookie. Enter bracket contests for a chance to take home prizes of up to $25,000 or pick from a huge selection of straight bets, props, and odds boosts. Whatever your style, MyBookie makes it easy to play your way and get paid. Sign up now and take advantage of our generous welcome offer to score a massive first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. All you have to do is claim promo code MADNESS50. But the fun doesn't stop there. Get up to the minute odds, free bets, and expert predictions to help you decide who to put your money on. The best part about MyBookie? You can bet on anything, anytime, from anywhere. Use promo code MADNESS50, that's MADNESS50, to secure your limited-time welcome bonus today. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. As you guys all know, I'm Tyler, and I am actually flying solo on today's show. It was one of those just kind of perfect storm days where Curtis and I just couldn't get our schedules to align for even a short window, really all week, in time to get this show done for Thursday which is when we always have this show up. We usually actually record it Wednesday. That's our normal recording day. And we have it up Wednesday night. But the basketball game against Tech being on Wednesday kind of threw a wrench in things. I'm going to the game, which knocked out our normal Wednesday recording day. And Curtis's law school schedule combined with my work schedule, it's not just his schedule, it's my schedule too. It just kind of made it tough to get together anytime before that this week. He had a couple exams to take. Uh, his professors are trying to get them in before Thanksgiving, so we just couldn't quite work it out this week for today's show. But no worries, because I have you guys covered for what is another huge late season game for our football team. And while I'd obviously prefer to have Curtis on here with me today, one small silver lining is that I get to try out a new preview show format. Something I've been thinking about all year long. I was going to try to save it for next year, but today I thought I'd give it a shot. So I'm actually excited about that, and hopefully, hopefully, you guys will enjoy it. And the new format that I'm going to introduce today, at least for today, at least for today, and I'd love some feedback. If you guys like it, we'll definitely try to incorporate it more going forward. And if not, then we'll scrap it. It's all good. We want to give you guys what you want. But what I'm going to do today is run through a series of things you need to know. Ten things you need to know about our game with Texas A&M. Like we always do, I'm going to talk numbers, I'm going to talk personnel, matchup schemes, all the good stuff that we always do here on this show. I'm just going to go about it in maybe a slightly different manner, a little bit of a different format. But first, I do have a couple of mailbag questions that I want to get to that came in after Charlie and I had recorded the mailbag episode. We always appreciate everyone's thoughts and questions, and we just definitely didn't want to leave anyone hanging. So I want to get to those first. And so our first question today is from Brent. And Brent asks, how about them effing junkyard dogs? I feel you, Brent. Definitely, my man. It says, great team win at the Cow College in the trailer park. Defense and offense fell off a little bit in the second half, but stepped up when it mattered. Looking ahead, what is to be expected with Texas A&M's defense against our offense? Obviously, we'll get into that a lot more later on in this show as we break down this game, but just give you a quick little taste of, of what we could expect to see from the A&M defense against our offense. Look, guys, we know what teams are going to do to us. It might look a little bit different here and there from game to game, but the general philosophy is very much the same. They're going to sell out against the run like everyone else we play does. 
They're going to game. They're going to stunt like crazy up front and try to create disruption and negative plays to get us behind the chains, which is really where our offense struggles is uh, when we're behind the chains in third and long situations. That's not what we're built to do, especially when we don't have Lawrence K during the game. They're going to play press man on the outside more often than not. Elijah Blades has been a really good corner for them coming over from the JUCO ranks. Got hurt a little bit last week, last week in South Carolina, but it looks like he's going to be cleared and ready to play in this game. So, yeah, I think that's, generally speaking, what we can expect. They're going to sell out against the run, stunt, game like crazy up front, try to get us in some negative play situations, play press me on the outside, and, and just dare our wide receivers to beat them. And we've seen that time and time and time again. And we've had some success at times, but obviously not consistently with how up and down our offense has been. All right, next question is from Jonathan. Thanks for the question, buddy. Jonathan asks, with big re- recent contributions from guys like Blaylock and Kyrus Jackson on offense and Tyreek Stevenson on defense, which guys on both sides of the ball do you think we might look back on and realize things change when their role increased, like with Jordan Davis last year? Uh, it's a great question, John. A really interesting question. I, I love the guys you mentioned. I don't want to steal your answers, but those guys are really the first ones that come to mind, especially offensively. Guys like Dominic Blaylock with that big touchdown catch against Auburn. He's a guy that I think could see an expanded role. We're seeing it right, happen right in front of our eyes. Karis Jackson with some of the, the injury issues that Lawrence Cager's been dealing with. He is um, certainly becoming more of a factor right in front of our eyes. Now, he's not necessarily making all the plays, but he's getting a lot more playing time. He's doing a great job blocking with some physicality on the outside. And we saw him show the potential, flash it at least, to make some plays uh, with that back shoulder, which was almost a touchdown against Auburn. His foot was barely out of balance. But the fact that he was kind of able to contort his body and make that catch there in that situation in a tight window, that uh, that was at least encouraging for what he can do in the future. Tyreek Stevenson, I think, is a flat-out baller. Uh, that sack he made, kind of traced his own steps back on Bo Nix, was one of the more athletic plays that we saw from a really athletic defense on Saturday against Auburn. So he's a guy I'm certainly watching the rest of the way. But there are a couple of other guys that are standing out to me, guys that I think haven't really necessarily made a huge impact to this point, but could definitely help us out down the stretch and could be a difference in a game. I've gone back and watched the Auburn game three times on top of watching it in person there in that stadium. And a guy that really flashed to me a couple times in that game, and I saw a little bit against Missouri as well, is Adam Anderson, pass rusher extraordinaire, right? He's kind of in that designated pass rusher role in our dime package. And he started the season out in that role. Then he kind of lost favor uh, for whatever reason. We got we had Jermaine Johnson getting in, getting in in those situations more than Anderson was. So I didn't know how the year was going to play out for him. But Anderson has responded well, and he's come back into that role. And he's playing very well and very fast. I mean, if you watch this guy move, oh my. My God, that guy can move. Now, he's not big enough. He can't hold on the weight right now to play three downs at that outside linebacker position. But as a guy that can play in space in our third down defense and our dime package, that can also rush the passer, that guy can absolutely make a difference. I mean, talk about playing a team like LSU in the SEC title game in a couple of weeks. With all the pieces they have on offense, all the ways they spread you out and try to get their playmakers the ball in space, you need to match that with speed. And Adam Anderson is a guy that fits that to a T. So I, I'm really watching him uh, the rest of the way because I think he's a guy that can certainly grow into an even bigger role in our team and make an impact as we get to some of the, these bigger games the next couple of the weeks. Uh, another guy that I would that I would point to, and I love him long-term. I've, I've talked about him before, and that's Quay Walker. I, I know that he's played some this year. He's played 
pretty much in every game he has. He's, now, we don't have quite the four-man rotation we've had in years past. There's, they're not divvying up the reps that equally, but he's getting in. He's making a difference. He's really also another guy, along with Anderson, has been more of a fixture in our third-down packages, which makes a lot of sense to me because he brings so much versatility to the table with his ability to also play in space with his athleticism. Now, it might take until next year before we really feel his presence more, but I think Quay Walker's a guy here the next year or so that's going to be a big-time player for us. Uh, you, on offense, I know you mentioned Blaylock, you mentioned Keir, Jackson. I would say Matt Landers, but I I haven't completely given up on the guy, but I don't know if the, the light's going to come on this year. Maybe it's going into next year. I don't know. Um, Jamari Salyer's a guy who's, I know he's not a sexy player on the offensive line, but I thought he played really well in relief last week against Auburn in a tough spot. So he's a guy that if he can keep playing that way, can certainly give us a benefit, give us a boost here. Because we got a bunch of guys banged up on the offensive line right now. Ben's banged up, Cade's banged up, Trey Hill's banged up. So having a guy like Jamari who hasn't really played as much and hasn't had a chance to get banged up, having him healthy and playing at that level could really help us out down the stretch. Uh, All right, next question here is a question from G. Thanks for the question, my man. G asks, at this point, I'd like to see Cager sit the rest of the regular season. There's no need to take the unnecessary hits these last two games. We need him most in the postseason. What are your thoughts? Uh, It's a really good point, G, and I get where you're coming from. I really do. And I'd love, ideally, to be able to do that. But I'm telling you, Texas A&M's defense, as we're going to get to here momentarily, is statistically just as good as Auburn's. And we saw the offensive issues we had last week without Cager and the issues we also, going back to the South Carolina game, the issues we had without him in that game. I will maintain if Lawrence Cager does not get hurt against South Carolina, we don't lose that game. Now, it should never come down to that. But him going down, I think, was kind of the nail in the coffin there. I think that's not why we lost the game, but it certainly contributed to that. Uh, so I, I guess I would agree with the assumption that we should be able to beat Tech without Cager, without much issue, but I'm just not so sure with Texas A&M. We can do it. Like, we can beat A&M without Cager. We beat Auburn on the road without Cager, but it would be far from a sure thing without him, and that's a risk I don't know if I'm willing to take. He just means that much to our offense right now. Tech's a different story. A&M, if, if this guy can go, if he's cleared, I think we have to let him give it a go. Um and maybe sit him against Tech if need be. But the thing is, like, you have to factor in like, with the injury he's dealing with, this, with the, the shoulder injury, that injury doesn't really heal without surgery. So unless we're going to send him under the knife here in the next week or so, which will knock him out for the rest of the season, I don't know if not playing him is the answer. It's, it's, it's not really like he's making all that much worse by playing with that injury. It's right now, honestly, what you hear most of the time from doctors with an injury like that is just pain tolerance and a range of motion things. So if he's clear and he can tolerate the pain, I think we have to play him. Now, and I, I'm not trying to challenge his manhood at all. God, that kind of injury is terrible. Uh, so if he can't tolerate the pain, then 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 don't put the guy out there, not unless he's comfortable. But if he's comfortable giving it a go and trying, then I think we have to play him this week against AM because he just does he does mean that much to our offense. And we are still very much in the thick of things for a college football playoff bid. I know people don't see us in the same light as they see LSU and Clemson in Ohio State. But the fact is, if we can win these last two regular season games, we have a we have an all-or-nothing shot against LSU to see who gets in that playoff. And uh, who knows what could happen in that one-game situation. So I think we have to do everything we can to win this A&M game. And uh, we'll see if, if, if Cager can tolerate the pain. If he can, I, I think you have to play him because I don't think you're going to make it that much worse. And the only way it's gonna, that's going to fix itself is with, with surgery in the offseason. And that's not really the option right now. So I know ideally it'd be great to allow him to sit and rest, but I just don't know how much that would actually help the situation. All right, next up, we've got a question from Adam. Thank you, sir. Adam asks, I also feel like Richie is playing really good. 
Uh, JR is solid on that back end, but I feel number two is peaking at the right time, number two being Richard LeCount. Though he has had a couple frustrating plays this year, I feel he has potentially had the better year in regard to our two safeties. What do you think? I totally agree that Richie has been nothing short of fantastic this year. This guy has been the player that we were all hoping he would be in his second full year as a starter. Uh, Pro Football Focus has him listed as only missing four tackles in a borderline top 25 safety among all FBS safeties and tackling efficiency. Now, again, as I always say, Pro Football Focus, I don't know exactly how they calculate their numbers, but those are the numbers they've put out. Uh, and he's he always flies around. He's been doing that since he got here, but he's still flying around, showing off that range. I think it's pretty clear that LeCount is athletically more gifted than J.R. Reed is. But I still think J.R. is maybe a little bit more reliable in playing his assignments, tackling in space. He's just a more experienced player right now. Uh, but saying that, Richard does have the higher ceiling. I, I have zero, zero qualms in saying that. He has the higher ceiling. And he's getting much closer to reaching that ceiling. But I still think that J.R. is the alpha back there. But Richie has been really, really good himself. And is certainly not far off at all from what JR has given us the past couple of years. So I'm really excited with what Richie's been able to do this year and the jump that he's taken. And it'd be awesome if he would come back next year because I think he could be a potential All-American candidate if he continues on this trajectory. All right, and our final question before we get to the 10 things you know about our matchup with Texas A&M this Saturday is from Witt. Thanks for the question, my friend. Uh, Witt asked, look to me like DJ Daniel got the majority of the snaps at corner again this week and played very well. Do you think this is because Tyson Campbell is still recovering from his injury, or do you think DJ has just been playing too well to sit? Uh, in situations like this, with I, I think it's all, it's oftentimes a combination of both, and I think that's the case here. DJ Daniel is playing really, really well. He's only allowing completions on 41% of his targets, according to Pro Football Focus. And for a guy who was a backup coming into the year, that's pretty solid play. That's really good play. Uh, and I, I think he's growing more and more comfortable with each passing week. He's a good athlete. Not quite the athlete that Campbell is, not quite the length and size that Campbell has, but he knows how to play that position. He's very instinctive out there, has great ball skills, and has just done a really good job. He's, got, again, gotten better and better each and every week, in my opinion. But I think a part of it is that Campbell is is working himself back from that turf toe injury, and that's an injury that's just so, it's very difficult to come back from. You can have setbacks, so I think we're certainly taking it uh, slowly with him and working him back in in a proper way. But I still say, like, if Campbell's healthy, 100% healthy, or very cl- or close to it at all, he gives us a better chance to match up with teams that have receivers like Jamar Chase and Jefferson and LSU. And even A&M this week, A&M, as we'll get to in a few minutes, has a really good group of wide receivers, a group of wide receivers that don't get near as much publicity as I think they should. And that's to do because of their record, but still, that, that's a good group. And, and, and Campbell has the size, he has the athleticism, he has the speed, the length, to play with those guys. Now, is he is he rusty? Yeah, I think that's certainly something you have to factor in here. I think that's why we're at least trying to get him some reps in these games to kind of wear some of that rust off because I think we have plans that we're going to need this guy down the stretch against some of these teams that we're going to have to play to get where we want to go. And before we move on, I do want to remind you guys about our friends at Vivid Seats. If you're still looking for tickets to this weekend's matchup against Texas A&M, the first time the Aggies are coming to Athens since they joined the SEC, Vivid Seats is the place to go. If you're still looking for SEC championship tickets, Vivid Seats has the best selection and the best prices. I used them last year when I bought SEC championship tickets, and it was an incredibly easy process. Find exactly the tickets I was looking for at exactly the price point that I wanted to pay. And right now, they have a rewards loyalty program running where fans are automatically enrolled 
just by going to the App Store or Google Play and downloading the Vivid Seats app. And with that rewards loyalty program, you can earn credits back on every single ticket purchase. And when it's time to buy, new users enter the promo code OVERTIME at checkout to receive a discount of up to $100. But uh, all right, thanks for the question, guys. I really do appreciate that. But let's get into the 10 things you need to know about our matchup with Texas A&M this Saturday. And number one, the first thing you need to know about Texas A&M is that this is a 7-3 team. And how you look at that 7-3 record is entirely a matter of perspective. You could say on one hand that this is the best three-loss team in America. As a lot of people out there, a lot of national pundits have said, because the three losses they have this year are to three teams with a combined record of 26-4, Alabama, Auburn, and Clemson. And you could also point out that they only got outgained in those three games against Bama, Clemson, and Auburn by a combined total of 69 yards. They weren't that far off in those games. But on the other hand, a different person could look at the same schedule and the same resume, and instead of pointing out how great their losses are, could argue that they haven't actually beaten anybody this year. They could say that their seven wins are against teams with a combined record of 25-48. and 48. They could also say that this AM team with a 7-3 record has not beaten one team that currently possesses a winning record. They could also point out they've only outgained three of the seven Power 5 opponents that they've played this year and have only outgained their other Power 5 opponents outside of Clemson, Bama, and Auburn by an average of 42 yards a game. And we're not talking about world beaters, guys. We're talking about Arkansas, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, and South Carolina only outgained those five teams by an average of 42 yards a game. So... There's a couple of different ways you can look at this. It's totally a matter of perspective. But if I'm trying to put all that together, there's different ways to look at this and try, trying to look at this objectively. I guess what I would say about this Texas A&M team with their 7-3 record is that this is a good, very talented team that, while never really dominant against Power 5 opponents, has, at the very least, taken care of business against those lesser opponents, hasn't played down to their level. But at the same time, they haven't quite been able to match up with the very good to elite teams on their schedule. And that's kind of been the story for Texas A&M for the past year or two. Uh, the second thing that you need to know about Texas A&M coming into this week's matchup is that offensively, they very much run a pro style. That is what head coach Jimbo Fisher does. Going back to his days as the coordinator at LSU, head coach at Florida State, now it's the head coach with a big contract at Texas A&M. They're very balanced. They're not as run-heavy as we are, but it's still a pro-style offense. Uh, they throw the ball 51% of the time this year, and they run the ball 49% of the time. So they are very close, about as close as you can get without actually being 50-50. Um, with the pro-style offense, Jimbo asked his quarterback, he asked Kellamon to make checks of the line, go through progressions. They play with 12 and 21 personnel at times. They run a bunch of power gap scheme runs. Uh, so this is a pro-style offense. There are certainly spread principles mixed in there like there are with all offenses these days. Guys, even our offense, believe it or not, has a ton of spread principles built into it. It's just not a full-on spread offense. But make no mistake about it. While they do have some spread principles in their offense, what Jimbo Fisher does offensively, they are much closer to what we do schematically on offense than a team like, oh, I don't know, like maybe Ohio State. They're very much uh, closer to us than they are Ohio State. Uh, the third thing you know about this Texas A&M team, sticking with the offense here, is that 
they've been dealing with quite a bit of offensive inefficiency on the season. There's a big gap between what they do against the best defenses on their schedule and everyone else they've played this year. And I know you can say that about most teams. Of course, you're not going to perform as well against the better defenses. But the gap has been pretty significant. And Jimbo Fisher's a really good offensive coach. He has been for a long time. But their offense has been inconsistent this year. There are moments where it looks like they're about to like truly turn into a downright dangerous offensive unit. I've been waiting on that all year long. I've watched them play quite a bit because I knew we were going to play them later on this year, which is now upon us. And then there are moments that leave you wondering like how an offense with all those playmakers could possibly be that average. It just depends on the game, depends on the day, depends on the quarter, depends on the series sometimes. Uh, but if you look at the splits here against the best defense on their schedule, okay, against Clemson, Auburn, and Bama, they're averaging 356 yards a game on offense and only five yards per play. That five yards per play, if that was what they were averaging throughout the entire year, would put them in the 100s nationally in yards per play. So very inefficient offensively against the better defenses that they've played, which again, makes sense. You could say that much about any team, but when you look at the splits and how they have fared against the other teams on schedule, it's pretty alarming for them. Against everyone else outside of Clemson, Auburn, and Bama, they are averaging 468 yards a game and almost two full yards per play more, 6.9 yards per play versus everyone else. If they were averaging that on the year, 6.9 yards per play, they would be borderline top 10 nationally in yards per play. So that inefficiency has been something they've dealt with when they've played better defenses. And oh, by the way, guys, we will be, at the very worst, the second best defense they face behind Clemson. And you can certainly make the argument that our defense is just as good, if not better, than Clemson. So um, they haven't fared as well offensively against defenses of the caliber that they'll see on Saturday as we try our guys out there. Uh, stick with the offense again here. The fourth thing we need to know, number four on the list, is that Kellen Mond, the quarterback for Texas A&M, has improved as a passer. He has, but he's still up and down in his third year, essentially his third year as a starter, and the second year in Jimbo Fisher's offensive system. Now, you could make the argument that Kellen Mond is the best quarterback we will have faced to this point with his dual threat ability and the fact that they have now unleashed, finally, I've been, I, well, I didn't want them to do it because I thought it would make them better, but I've been saying all year, they if they want to do some, if they want to be more dangerous offensively, they needed to unleash Kellen Mond with his legs, and they have done that. They have done that a lot more than they did early in this season, and I think it's making a difference for this offense. But I think maybe the biggest factor, as we said with the, with the third thing to know, that offensive efficient, inefficiency, maybe the biggest factor behind that inefficiency is Kellamon's up and down play. He'll have like a, a 57% completion percentage game, then maybe a 71% game, then a 63% game, and then he'll revert back for a few games to the mid-50s, when you, just when you think he's started to turn the corner. That's just kind of who he is. He's been up and down. He has those moments where you're like, dude, I think he's about to turn the corner. But then he goes and has those stretches where it's like, this guy has no idea what he's doing in this offense. But overall, he has been more efficient this year, raising his completion percentage to 64%, which is up from 57% last year and 51% as a freshman. And that makes sense to me. That, that, that probably should be the natural progression for a guy like Kellen Mond. He came into college extraordinarily raw as a quarterback, a super athlete, but very, very raw at that position. And he was actually, if you remember, guys, he was recruited to operate Kevin Sumlin's spread offense. So the transition to a pro-style offense was an unexpected curveball, and it's actually taken some time, like understandably so, for him to adjust to that. And I, and I still think in a lot of ways, he's very much learning how to operate within that pro-style framework. 
But you have to admit, he has undoubtedly improved his ability to understand coverages, make some pre-snap reads, make good decisions, all those things. Now, he still has a lot of room to improve there, but he's made a big jump from where he was last year in that regard. Now, where he still really struggles is accuracy. All of you guys that complain about Jake Fromm's supposed accuracy issues, and sure, Jake misses some throws every now and then, but so does literally every single quarterback. Those of you who complain about Jake Fromm, just watch Kellen throw the football, and you might appreciate our guy just a little bit more. Every single game I watch him play, he leaves big plays on the field, and usually it's multiple big plays. I'm, I'm talking guys like I'm talking potential game-changing type plays. Now, Fromm may do that in one or two games a year, but it's a pretty consistent thing for Kellamon. I mean, in particular, that Clemson game, that is a great example. Like, they had a couple of opportunities early in that game to take control because they actually held that Clemson offense pretty much in check in that game. I think they held them to 24 points and lost game 24-10. But Mon missed a couple of plays that were there down the field in that game that if he hits one or two of them, that is a totally different game. They put all the pressure on Clemson, and who knows how that game would have turned out. But Mon missed those plays, and that's kind of a microcosm of Kellen Mon in a nutshell. That's what this guy is. He can make some big-time plays for you, but he'll leave a ton of big plays out there. And I just, I hope that Saturday is not the one game where he starts to kind of change that trend, because that's just kind of been who he's been throughout his career. All right, next up, about halfway through here, the fifth thing to know about Texas A&M is that Honestly, guys, I think they have the, potentially the best collection of skill talent that we have faced all year, and that includes a team like Florida, who has a lot of skill talent at that wide receiver position. A&M, they have dynamic playmakers all over the field, especially at wide receiver, and they all complement each other very well. you got to start with Kellen Mond himself. He is a dynamic playmaker. He's not a, the most polished passer yet, although he certainly improved in that regard as we just went over. But he is a dynamic playmaker with his legs. I mean, he's not the kind of guy that can just pick up a first down when needed. He's the kind of, the kind of guy that can pick up the first down and still be running and take it to the house. I mean, he's that kind of athlete. And then you got a bunch of receivers. You got Jamon Osmond, who's their top receiver this year, a former top 100 recruit who hadn't really made as much of an impact coming in this year, but he's really turned it on this year. Uh, 6'2", 220, he's got 54 catches for 744 yards, leads their team in both receptions and receiving yards. Uh, another guy that, that I think is a really good player is Courtney Davis. I'd like to get him involved in, in the short intermediate game, the screen game, let him make some plays. He's got 41 catches for 489 yards in the year. Kendrick Rogers is a guy that I was really impressed with last year. I thought he might be their go-to guy at receiver this year, but he has, I don't want to say he's taking a step back, but he hasn't taken a huge step forward this year, but he's still a playmaker out there. He's a bigger body. Talking about guys who complement each other, he compliments Osmond and Davis and that he's a bigger body and go up and win those 50-50 balls with a little bit more uh, efficiency. He's 6'4". He's got 27 catches for 303 yards on the year. And the next guy that I'm going to talk about is a guy that's really come on lately for A&M and might be, if I was if I was the defense coordinator in charge of putting together a game plan for this Texas A&M offense, he might be at the top of my list of guys that we have to game plan for because he's really come on strong lately. And that's tight end Jalen Weidermeyer. One of the reasons A&M was pretty good offensively last year, like their only saving grace offensively last year really, was tight end Jay Sternberger. I think he was their number one weapon last year. I thought losing him would be a big blow for them. And it was early in the year because they didn't have anyone to replace him. But Jalen Weidermeyer, after a slow start, has really come on of late. And he's kind of taken on that Jay Sternberger role. In fact, he might be more of a true tight end than what Jay Sternberger was. Sternberger was more of that kind of like 
new age spread type tight end. You spread him out in the slot. You put him out wide. Weidermeyer can do that, but he can also stay in line and be a factor in the run game as well. He's a 6'5", 260-pound true freshman that can run. He's averaging 15.3 yards a catch. He leads the team in yards per catch. Uh, 24 catches for 366 yards, six touchdowns on the year. And here's the thing with Weidermeyer, as is the case with a lot of freshmen. We're seeing it on our team right now. Early in the year, he wasn't as much of a factor. He only had nine catches for 112 yards through the first five games of the season. But he's had 15 catches for 268 yards over the last four games. He's really, really become more of a focal point for this offense. He actually has led the team in receiving yards in three of the last four games. He is a guy they want to get the football to. Talk about Jimbo Fisher running a pro-style offense. Uh, a feature of Jimbo Fisher's offenses for a long time has been talented tight ends, and Weidemeyer is the next guy in line. He is a big-time playmaker that we are going to have to find a way to match up with. We're going to have to factor him into our game plan in a big way, try to take him away. And we've, you guys know we've had some issues dealing with some of these talented tight ends, whether it was Cole Komet against Notre Dame early in the year, whether it was uh, Kyle Pitts against Florida. I mean, we've had some issues with those bigger guys that can play out in the slot and attack the middle of the field. So hopefully we're going to find a way to take him away because he's been a big-time playmaker for them for the past couple of weeks. But the next thing you need to know about this Texas A&M team is that despite all that skill talent that I just went over, they haven't been especially explosive on offense, which is surprising when you factor in all those players I just went through. They're sixth in the SEC in plays of 20-plus yards, but they're only tied for ninth in plays of 30-plus yards. Guys, actually, they only have 19 plays of 30-plus yards compared to our 24 plays of 30-plus yards. And obviously, you guys know, we all know, we've had our issues offensively. So that should give you a little bit of context there. And again, you would think they'd be far more explosive with the amount of date, like what I think are dangerous playmakers that they have on offense, but they just aren't. And I, and I think the reason is it's a mix of Kellen Mond's inaccuracies and his continued development at that position and also the lack of a run game. That's allowing teams to play coverage a little bit more and to take away some of those big play opportunities that Texas A&M wants to hit. So that's something that you have to factor in when you're facing this Texas A&M offense is that, yeah, like they have a lot of playmakers, but they're just not generating a ton of explosive plays. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this when we get to our 3-2-1 segment at the end of the show. Uh, But what they are doing, while they maybe aren't hitting a ton of explosive plays, what they are doing a better job of recently And number seven on our list is they are running the ball much more effectively. They were not running the football well at all the first half of the year, but they are averaging 240 yards a game and six yards to carry on the ground over their last four games compared to get this only 132 yards and 4.4 yards to carry over their first six games. They've moved up to sixth in the SEC in rushing offense, averaging 175 yards a game. That's still pretty mediocre, right? But guys, they were towards the bottom of that list for most of the first half of the season. But they've changed some things on offense that have allowed them to run the ball with more efficiency. The first thing they've done, as I said a little bit earlier in the show, is they've unleashed Kellen Mond in the running game. He's rushing for 72 yards a game and six yards to carry himself over the last four games versus Power 5 teams compared to 22 yards a game over the first five games of the season. So he's uh, he's more than tripled his rushing output over the past four games against Power 5 opponents. And to me, there's no coincidence that Kellen Mond's emergence as a threat on the ground coincides with their best offensive stretch of the season, going for over 500 yards in each of the last two games. Now, their top running back is freshman Isaiah Spiller, who's got 796 yards rushing on the year for six yards to carry. 
But that doesn't tell the whole story. He wasn't supposed to be the starter coming to the year. It was supposed to be Jay Sean Corbin. Corbin goes down the first game or two, and then Spiller is inserted immediately into the starting lineup. And I don't know if he was quite ready for that. He really was not getting it done early in the year. It wasn't just him, but he was not producing the way they needed him to produce early on. In the first five games as Power 5 teams, he averaged only 27.6 yards rushing for two and a half yards to carry and only had two touchdowns. But over the last three games, however... He's averaged 145 yards rushing, 6.8 yards per carry, and has scored four touchdowns. Although it bears mentioning that one of those games over the last three, which was by far his biggest game of the season, was against uh, Texas San Antonio, where he went for over 200 yards. So that might skew things a little bit, but still, he's running the football a lot better than he was early on in the season, being a lot more productive, I guess I would say, than he was early on. And I think, again, that's a direct result of them featuring Kellen Mond more in the run game, because it gives them a numbers advantage and puts another player in the run game that defenses have to account for. They can't direct their attention as much to slowing down Isaiah Spiller. But even with his recent surge, Spiller still only averaging 51 yards rushing a game and 3.88 yards per rush against Power 5 teams. So that doesn't really spell a lot of success for him and for this Texas A&M rushing game when you look at who they have to face this week and our very, very stout rush defense. Now, their number two back is a guy named Cordarian Richardson. He had a big game against South Carolina last week with 130 yards rushing on only six carries, but one of those was a 75-yard touchdown run. But the thing is, he had not run for more than 35 yards in a single game before last week. He kind of exploded onto the scene. But he's a bigger, more physical back than what Spiller is, and he did see more touches and more playing time last week because coming off the bye week, A&M was able to install a new formation where they came out with 21 personnel and a split back pro set look with Isaiah Spiller and Richardson in the backfield at the same time. Now, they did not run this formation exclusively, but they did intersperse it quite a bit with their offensive game plan on Saturday against South Carolina. Now, when they went with that 21 personnel, that split back pro set look, they basically ran four plays out of it, but it was really effective because... South Carolina had not seen them do that. I, I'm going back. I've watched a lot of AM this year, getting ready for this week, uh, all season long, and went back the past week or two, trying to get ready, going back and rewatching a lot of those games again. I haven't really seen them do that much at all, if any at all, this season. But they did it quite a bit against South Carolina, so the Gamecocks were not quite prepared for it. But again, I only really saw them run four different plays out of that formation. Uh, what they had, they had a lead play where it's Usually it was Richardson as the lead back, and they were handing the ball to Spiller. They also ran a lead option on a couple of occasions in that game where they basically had Richardson as the lead blocker, and they had Spiller kind of coming behind Kellen Mond as the pitch man. They really didn't have much success with that particular play, but they at least put it on tape, so you've got to be ready for it. Then they had a counter play off the lead play, and they also had a play-action wheel route. They scored a touchdown on throwing the ball down the field to Cordary and Richardson. So those are the four plays I saw them run. The, the lead play was the play they ran most often, but I have to imagine they're going to add to it this week. They might have some sort of reverse action off of it, maybe a split zone play. There's a couple different things they could do they did not put on tape yet. So I, I imagine they didn't just put four plays in during the bye week, or maybe they did, and this week they're going to add a play or two. But I imagine we're going to see something they have not shown out of that formation. And we're going to see that, guys. We're going to see that split back pro set look as they ran it with a lot of success against South Carolina. So definitely expect to see that on Saturday. But when breaking down this Texas A&M running game, the fact is 
that with this running game, they were having a lot of difficulty running the ball conventionally early in the year. And Jimbo Fisher knew that if they had any chance at all to beat some of the better teams on their schedule down the stretch, they had to find a way to run the ball more effectively. So the obvious first step was to take the leash off your quarterback and use him more in the, in the design quarterback run game, which they have done. That was step one. And then they went and spent the bye week trying to build on that by adding in some new sets and formations to kind of breathe some life into what was really a stagnant run game. And it's worked. They are being much more productive on the ground than they were through the first half of the season. But moving to number eight on the list, while the run game has improved for Texas A&M through the past couple weeks, I would still say that we have the match-up advantage in the trenches on both lines of scrimmage. When you look at A&M and you look at our team, and you look at our offensive line versus their defensive line, their offensive line versus our defensive line, we have the advantage pretty much across the board. When you look at Texas A&M, their offensive sack rate versus our defensive sack rate, they are 95th nationally offensive sack rate. Their offensive line, guys, it's not very good. I think it's the weak point on their entire team. They got a true fresh starting at right guard who gets abused at times. He really does. He'll probably end up being a good player, but he is not ready to play at an SEC caliber level right now. He's just not, especially against a really good rush defense like we have. But they're 95th in offensive sack rate. On the other hand, while we may not be elite in getting after the passer, we are 61st nationally in defensive sack rate. So maybe not a, a major advantage in our favor there, but certainly still an advantage. And I think this offensive line is a unit that we can take advantage of and try to create some pressure on Kellen Mond. Uh, now, if you flip it to the other side, with Texas A&M's defensive sack rate versus our offensive sack rate, guys, we are fourth nationally in offensive sack rate. A&M is 70th nationally in defensive sack rate. So that is a major matchup advantage in our favor. I have a hard time seeing how they're going to consistently generate pressure against Jake Fromm. As I say often, if you can keep Jake Fromm clean, the guy is going to make you pay more often than not. And then the next couple numbers here, we're looking at line yards, which is basically, it's a it's a, an advanced statistical measure that isolates the yards that the offensive line is responsible for in run plays. So in offensive line yards, Texas A&M is 54th nationally. In defensive line yards, we are 49th nationally. So not too much of a difference there, but still, we have a slight edge there. And at the very least, it's not a mismatch against us there. Uh, and then if you look at defensive line yards for AM and our offensive line yards, again, this is a matchup that really favors us. We're eighth in the in the country in offensive line yards. They are only 53rd nationally in defensive line yards. So that's a pretty big edge for us there. You look at defensive power success rate versus offensive power success rate. And power success rate, guys, I've used this stat before, but if you're not familiar with it, if you're new to the show, that is the percentage of plays on third or fourth down with two or less yards to go that you are converting. AM is terrible slowing down offenses in those situations. They're 122nd nationally in defensive power success rate. Now, our offense, we know that we've had our issues in short yard situations, but we've been doing much better lately. We're 67th nationally in offensive power success rate. So while we might not be great in that situation, we are much better offensively than what AM is defensively uh, with their defensive power success rate. And if you flip it, flip it over to the other side, we are fourth nationally and defensive power success rate. So we've done a great job of stuffing teams in those third and fourth and short situations. And AM has been good in those situations offensively. They're 17th nationally on uh, with offensive power success rate. But again, just not quite as good as we've been defensively. So every one of those matchups favors us. Some more than others, but they all favor us. And to me, that matchup between our offensive line and their defensive line, that's maybe the biggest matchup advantage for us in this game. I fully know that it is 
not the sexy thing in this modern day and age of offensive football, but I am still very much a believer in the notion that games are won and lost in the trenches more often than not. So this advantage here in the trenches, at least statistically what is an advantage in the trenches, and really what I also see with my eyes, that is something that gives me some hope for our chances in this game. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I got a couple more here. The next thing to know about this Texas A&M team is that their defense is dramatically improved after basically being what got Kevin Sumlin fired a couple years back. Uh, so if you look at the last couple of years, they are up in essentially every statistical category. This year, they're 25th nationally. I mean, they're top 25 in total defense, guys. Only giving up 327 yards a game. Compare that to last year, they were 32nd nationally. So it's a jump up from last year under first-year defense coordinator Mike Elko. At least it was his first year at Texas A&M. Mike Elko's done a really good job wherever he's been. Going back to Wake Forest, Notre Dame, now with Jimbo Fisher at A&M. He's made a huge difference for them. Because if you look at 2016-2017, they were 90th nationally in total defense, giving up 439 yards a game in 16 and 17 they were up to 78th nationally giving up 408 yards a game so they have made a tremendous improvement there in total defense in yards for place a similar story they went from 56th nationally in 16 to 68th in 17 to 72nd last year this year all the way to 28th nationally in yards per play rush defense they're up to they were really good against the run last year they were elite last year they were third nationally only giving up 95 yards game on the ground this year they're still really good on the ground but not quite as good as they were last year they're 36th nationally giving up 132 yards a game uh their passing defense that's been huge and they're 27th nationally nationally uh, against the pass, only giving 195 yards game through the air. And that's been a huge difference for them because they've been in the uh, high 80s to 90s the past three years coming into this year. And their scoring defense, they're 23rd national, giving them 20.3 points per game. That's up from 25 last year, 30.7 in 2017, and 24.5 in 2016. So this defense is much improved over what they put on the field the past couple of years. The biggest difference, again, this season has been the pass defense. They got a Juco cornerback who's played really well for them, Elijah Blades. He got hurt against South Carolina, but it looks like he's going to be ready to play and cleared to go in this one. Um, so all in all, when you look at those numbers, top 25 in total defense, uh, top 30 in pass defense, top 25 scoring defense, top 40 in rush defense, top 30 yards per play. What that tells me, this is a really good, but not quite elite defense. They're fifth in the SEC in total defense, six in yards per play. So we're kind of middle of the pack and what's a really good defensive league. But the thing is, guys, we've already played three of the defenses ahead of them in both categories in the SEC in, in yards per play and total defense. And we won all three of those games. So we've played defenses that are better than AM and won all three of those games. But they are good. I'm not trying to discount them at all. They are a very good defense, a much improved defense. And they did hold that great BAM offense to their lowest yardage total of the year in a game that Tua didn't either miss or get knocked out of. They held Bama to 448 total yards, which I know that's still a lot of a lot of yards, but we're talking about Bama. That's holding them pretty much in check. And our offense, as you guys well know, is definitively not operating in the same stratosphere as the Bama offense. Uh, all right, and the last thing you need to know about this Texas A&M team before we move into 3-2-1 is that defensive tackle Justin Matabuki is the next big-time defensive tackle that we're going to have to face this year. It seems like almost every week we've got a big one that we got to face, whether it's 
Uh, last week, obviously, Derek Brown. We had Jordan Elliott the week before. We had Javon Kinlaw against South Carolina. Florida's got a couple guys. Edge rushers, but still good players. And Matabuki is next on that list. He leads their team in both sacks and tackles for loss. He's got three and a half sacks on the year and nine tackles for loss in that interior defensive line position. And like Auburn with Derek Brown, AM does a really good job. Mike Elko does a good job of moving him around to make it very difficult to game plan for him. You don't know from play to play whether he's going to be playing a zero tech on the nose, be it a three tech, five tech sometimes out there on the on the tackle. It's just tough to game plan for him. You just don't know where he's going to be on any given play. Now he's a little bit of a different player than Derek Brown and Javon Kinlaw, who are, I think are the two best defensive tackles that we have played this year. He's a he's not a small guy. Matabuki's not small. He's 6'3", 300 pounds. But when you look at Javon Kinlaw, who's 6'6", 310, 315. You look at Derek Brown, who's 6'5", 320, 325. He's not quite as big as those guys. But I think he may be a little bit more explosive. He's a true one-gap defensive tackle that excels at penetration, being disruptive in the backfield. That's why he leads a team with nine tackles for loss. And he is the guy on that defense that we're going to have to account for on every single snap. And that does concern me somewhat when you factor in that we have a banged up offensive line. I think those guys are going to play. I think Cade's going to play. Ben might give it a go. Uh, But even Trey Hill, who played all last week, he's still not 100% after injuring his ankle against Missouri. So he's going to be a tough matchup. There's no doubt. We're going to have to find a way to account for him on every single snap. All right, guys, before I get out of here today, I do want to run through our 3-2-1, which is what we do each and every week on this preview show, where I give you three reasons for optimism, two areas for concern, and one key to the game. And let's start with the three reasons for optimism. And i kind of gone over most of these, but just kind of reiterate them. The first reason for optimism to, to like our chances in this game is just that advantage that we have in the trenches. I still believe that this is a line of scrimmage league, and that is where everything starts. If you can protect the passer, if you can run the football, and then on the other side, stop the run and affect the opposing passer, you're going to have a really good chance to win football games. I think we can do all of those things in this one. At least both the stats and, as, as, as I said earlier, the eye test suggests that we should be able to to do those things. Uh, the second reason for optimism is that, as I said earlier, a and they're just not especially explosive offense. And if that trend continues on Saturday and they have to go on long 10 play plus drives to score, I'm not sure they can do that consistently enough against our defense to beat us. Sure, can they do it once or twice? Yeah, I'm sure they can. But to do that consistently enough to beat us, I'm not sure they have that in them against the kind of defense that we've been playing the past couple of weeks. And the final reason for optimism in this game is that while they have been running the ball better the past couple of weeks and having more success on the ground, and with a pro-style offense, that is very important to their offensive success and ultimately their overall chances to win this game, I'm just not sure if they're going to be able to run the ball effectively enough against our extraordinarily stout rush defense to give themselves a chance to win this football game. And we'll talk more about that with our one key to the game. Now, there are some areas of concern, though. Like any game, there's always some areas you got to watch out for. And the first thing here, I know I sound like a broken record with this, saying something similar for the past couple of weeks, but the situation has to be at least a little concerning coming into this game. Number one, it's senior day for our guys. You never know how teams and how seniors are going to respond to the emotion that day and the buildup that week. You just never know. That's something to, to think about. And AM has absolutely nothing to lose in this game. They've already got three losses on the year. They're not playing the title game. They're going to be in the pool of six with the Bulls. So it doesn't really, you know, losing this game isn't going to hurt them all that much. 
And I think that's very similar to how South Carolina approached the game with us a couple weeks ago. Just got nothing to lose. And they're going to go out there and give it everything they've got. I fully expect to get their best shot, and I fully expect them to hold nothing back in play calling and from an effort perspective as well. We're going to get their absolute best effort. And uh, that's that's scary because they have some playmakers that can certainly hurt us. There's no doubt there. You got to factor in the weather as well. It's almost certainly going to be a wet environment right now as of Wednesday evening. Uh, it is uh, right now 100% chance of rain on Saturday. And whether it's raining in-game or uh, the field is just waterlogged from rain earlier that day, it's going to be a wet environment. And our big advantage in this game, I think, is on defense. And contrary to popular belief, wet conditions like that, they actually affect defenses more than offenses. Defense is, by its very nature, a, a reactive part of the game. You don't know what the offense is going to do. You read what the offense does, and you react. When you're in react mode like that, those sudden, unexpected movements that you have to make, that can be a lot more difficult to do, and you can lose your footing and fall down. Big plays can happen for offenses. So that's something to think about here. And Jimbo Fisher still searching for that big signature win at A&M, and you know with our offensive struggles that they see us as a team that they can potentially get that win against. So we've got to come out 100% ready to play this game. The fact that it is at 3.30, I think that helps as opposed to being a noon game like South Carolina was. But again, going back to the weather, that concerns me a little bit too. Does the weather keep some fans away? Does the feather kind of dampen the environment? We cannot let that happen, guys. We're going to have to be there. We're going to have to be loud. And we're going to have to show up for this team and make an impact in this game. Because A&M is going to come to play. I'm just going to tell you guys that that's going to happen. Uh, and then the second area of concern is that statistically, this AM defense is every bit as good as Auburn's and really not that far off of what Florida's defense has done statistically. And, and you guys know we had a lot of difficulty moving the football consistently against Auburn last week. We had nine three and outs, 11 total punts, and AM, at least from a, st- a statistical perspective, is right there with Auburn. So I think you have to be worried about that to at least some degree. And finally, the one key to this game. To me, it's pretty simple. We have to win the turnover battle. AM is more than capable of coming in here and beating us. There's no doubt in my mind. But for that to happen, I think we have to help them, much like we did against South Carolina. If we protect the football and force Kalamon into a few mistakes ourselves, he is, by the way, tied for the second most interceptions in the league, then I think our chances to win increase exponentially. I mean, Obviously, I know that's Captain Obvious, but it's just true. And of course, this is important in every game. It is. But we've already lost one game to a team we had no business losing to because we got upside down in the turnover battle. We cannot let that happen again. If we do not give them short fields, if we do not give them defensive scores like we did to South Carolina, if we don't give them special team scores, if we don't do stupid things, we should win this football game. It might be closer than we want it to be, but we should still win this football team because we have the better overall team. So just do not give them anything like that. Uh, now, I know that's a little bit of a cop-out because, yeah, you need to win the turnover battle every single game. So if there was a, a, maybe a secondary key to the game, I think it's uh, stopping the run, which is something that we've been really good at all year long, similar to Auburn. If you can make Kellamon one-dimensional, then I think we're going to be in good shape. Their offense is just not built to throw the ball 40-plus times and win football games. It's not. It's kind of like our offense. It's not built to do that. Uh, the three games that they had the most passing attempts on, on the year were all three losses. They had 42 attempts against Clemson, 49 against Auburn, 42 against Bama. All three of those games were losses for them. So if we can force Mont to have to throw the ball 40-plus times, history says that we should be in pretty good shape in this one. So win the trover battle, stop the run, 
and we should uh, we should have some success against this Texas A&M team, which is a good A&M team. Maybe not an elite team, but a very good A&M team that is certainly capable of coming and beating us if we are not ready to play. But all right, guys, that does it for me here today on the Glory UJ podcast. I've actually got to get out of here and get this basketball game against Tech. So thanks for listening, guys. I really do appreciate it. We'll be back later in the week for our picks of the week. But uh, as always, go dogs. <laughs>